All right, we're going to be in page 834, Matthew chapter 9. If you have a coffee house Bible, page 834, Matthew chapter 9. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 14, Jesus' question about fasting, it says, John's disciples came and they asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? How is it that your disciples do not fast? That's the question I want to explore today. How is it that your disciples do not fast? Today, we're going to explore why we don't fast, and then we'll dive into this text and explore why they didn't fast, and then we'll explore whether or not we could or should be fasting together. Okay, but first, what do I mean by fasting? Um, a few years ago at Lent, my wife and I, Kelsey, um, we gave up creamer for Lent because we wanted to be reminded daily of the bitterness of sin. It worked. It worked for me. I went back to creamer. Kelsey just gave it up. She, I, yeah, she's holier than me. So that is not what I mean by fasting, uh, technically. Sometimes uh, I'll give up Twitter or social media for Lent. Have you ever given up something like that? You give up maybe a bad habit. Now, I've heard some people give up things like porn for Lent, and I'm like, that's not the thing you should bring back at Easter. It's... <laughs> There, there are some things, Paul says, you just, you crucify the flesh, not you fast from it for a while. Some things need crucified. And so that's not what we mean by fasting. So what do we mean by fasting? I mean, abstaining from food and or drink for a spiritual purpose. Okay, the New Testament word, which is translated fasting, literally means one who is not eaten. So it may be good to fast from Netflix or from social media or from creamer. It may be good to fast from a bad habit, but this invitation is to a specific practice that's very biblical and very widespread, and the practice is fasting from food. Please allow me, before you make up your mind about this invitation, to say much more about it. In fact, this is the beginning of, of a series. This is part one, an invitation to fasting. Next week, we're going to look at another text about fasting in the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 6, and then the week after that, we'll look at Matthew chapter 4, one of the other texts in Matthew about fasting. As it turns out, Matthew has a lot to say about fasting, and we get to dive into all of it. So, the disciples of Jesus don't fast in the time of Jesus. We'll look there. But I look around at the disciples of Jesus I know, and most of the disciples of Jesus I know don't fast either. This is kind of where I'm... I'm grew up, nobody, it was unheard of for anybody to talk about or to practice fasting, without condemning it, at least. Uh, I was working at a church here in the Memphis area. They recently did a survey of their, the church's spiritual practices. Hundreds of people participated, and, you know, it was like prayer, Bible reading, you know, all of it. They were asking about all of it, and they were asking, how often do you do these things? Well, one of the questions was, how often do you fast? And 90% of the church said never. Now, 2% said they do about once a week. And then one person said they do every day. I'm like, whoa, <laughs> that's a lot. <laughs> there was one time in scripture, Moses, he goes up on Mount Sinai and he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. He gets the law and then he comes down 
And then you, you remember what he does. He smashes the tablets, and then he has to go back up, and he fasts for another 40 days and 40 nights. I think a relative of Moses goes to a church here in Memphis. It's pretty awesome. No, probably what they mean is that there's some other form of like intermittent fasting that they're doing. But what we mean is fasting for a spiritual purpose. The disciples of Jesus that I know don't fast. Now, some of you do fast. And so bear with me for just a few minutes before I lead us into a full invitation for our whole church to join together in fasting. But most of us aren't fasting. And I say that as somebody who doesn't fast very often, I say that not to like heap guilt on you or for you to come into this from a place, but if you just look around, you realize I'm not alone. Just, it's, it's all of us. This is a thing that we're all trying to figure out. And so why don't we fast? What are the barriers to fasting? The first barrier, I think, is that it's challenging. I was talking to a friend here and he says, well, it's pretty simple. The reason we don't fast is because it's hard. In other words, I don't fast because I tend to get hungry, and when I get hungry, I want to eat. We have an appetite, and in, in this country, if you have an appetite, you just satisfy it. There's food. Open the fridge, open the pantry, eat it. It's hard. Some people think it's even dangerous. By the way, we're talking about fasting, not starvation, okay? There was one book on fasting. He, he has this real section in his intro on fasting where he says, fear not, it won't kill you. So I can echo that. We're not talking about something that's dangerous to you. It's not that challenging. It's mostly challenging because it's brand new to us. It's kind of like maybe jumping on battery when your battery runs out. If you have seen somebody do it, or if you've been taught how to do it, then you're like, well, this is pretty straightforward. I can actually do this. But if all you know is that it's something people out there do and you don't even know what it is, no one's ever showed you how, something that is straightforward and simple can feel like it's really challenging. I think that is like fasting. Fasting is actually quite doable. It doesn't have to be incredibly challenging and it can still be transformative. I'll say more about that. The second challenge is that a lot of Protestants think of fasting as something that's Catholic. Now, some of you come from a Catholic background, and you're like, yeah, fasting's normal. <laughs> it's not to most Protestants or evangelicals. So why is this? Well, let me describe it like this. In the Reformation, when the, the Protestants began protesting the practices of the Roman Catholic Church, it was almost like a divorce happened, where there's a custody battle that ensues. You know, like mom's got this stuff, dad's got this stuff, the Protestants got things like scripture and preaching, and, and then the Catholics got things like tradition and spiritual practices, and fasting seemed to be lumped in there. But as children of, of the whole body of Christ, I think some of us are like, you know, it's pretty nice over there at that house. They have some things that I want over here. Can, can we pull it in? And the truth is, you don't have to throw out fasting altogether. Now, there are some reasons to be concerned about legalism. So if you're concerned about workspace righteousness or, or really laws, the Catholic Church does have laws requiring adults to fast. But what we're describing is not an obligation, it's an invitation. This is not a practice of legalism, it's actually a pursuit of the grace of God. So there is a way to practice fasting that still embraces some good things from the tradition of the church. There was a preacher in Portland, John Mark Comer, he says and whenever he did a fasting series, somebody commented immediately below, and they said, this sounds like a cult. I was like, 
In other words, it feels a little extreme, right? I just want to be a Christian. Do I really have to do all of that? And again, you don't have to. This is an invitation, not an obligation. But there's an element here where there's actually people who have practiced some extreme things. One of the guys many, many years ago in the church was a guy named Simon the Stylite. Um, Simon wanted to be as holy as he could be, and so he stood on a six-foot-tall column to practice holiness. Six-foot-tall then began to weigh on him, and so he got on a 60-foot-tall column, and he tied himself down so that he wouldn't eat for 40 days. Guys, if your pastor or your church asks you to do that, it's a cult, okay? <laughs> that's, that's not what's happening here. Uh, so fasting can be extreme, but you've already heard me say, I'm inviting you into 40 days of prayer and fasting. Just so you know, we're not saying 40 days straight. We're saying at least one meal a week for the six weeks leading up to Easter. I'll tell more about that in a second. But there's also a lot of cultural barriers to fasting, cultural barriers. Now, our hesitancy culturally may be because we live in a culture of consumerism, where if we have an appetite, we just satisfy it. But there's an element here where if you look around and you look back in human history, you realize that nearly every religion practices fasting. Fasting is not a Christian thing. It's a human thing, except, that is, for our culture. <laughs> our culture doesn't seem to practice fasting. So why is that? I was reading James K.A. Smith. He was reflecting on some of our resistance to things like embodiment. He says, in ways that are more modern than biblical, we've been taught to assume that human beings are fundamentally thinking things. While we might never have read or even heard of 17th century French philosopher René Descartes, many of us unwittingly share his definition of the essence of a human person as a thinking thing. I think, therefore I am, Descartes said, and most of our approaches to discipleship end up parroting his idea. Now, it's not that Americans are totally against fasting. Many Americans find fasting compelling, but for reasons that have nothing to do with discipleship to Jesus. Arthur Wallace, in his book, God's Chosen Fast, he says he went into a large city, he went to a bookstore, and he said, do you have any books on Christian fasting? And they looked around, and they didn't have any. He went down the road to a health, book, food, uh, health food store, and he said, do you have any books on fasting? And he says, there's this huge genre of literature. He says, there was far more being written on the physical aspect of this subject of fasting by food reformists than on the spiritual aspect by Christian writers at the time. Are there real benefits? Yes. There are mental benefits to fasting. Did you hear about Nancy? She's been fasting now. She has a clear head. She's sleeping better. Oh, I'll try that. Or did work productivity. Yes, I have so much work to do. Why don't I just skip lunch? Health benefits. I need to lose weight. Maybe I'll try intermittent fasting. As its practitioners know, Thomas Ryan says in The Sacred Art of Fasting, fasting also calms us, sharpens the senses, helps us think more clearly and sleep better. But my invitation has nothing to do with any of these health benefits or mental benefits. My invitation is strictly based on discipleship to Jesus. When Jesus says, help us understand why your disciples do not fast, his answer is, they will fast. He teaches his disciples, when you fast, and Jesus himself practiced fasting. 
We'll look at those texts in the next two weeks. But there's something that I'm missing and have been missing. There's something that the Christians around me have also been missing. Why don't we fast? Well, most of us, it's because, as Scott McKnight said, we've got a body problem. We tend to think of spirituality as something you do entirely in your head or with your thinking or with your mind. And so many of us think if it's physical, and fasting is very physical, if it's physical, then it's not spiritual. And fasting is whole body stuff, to use McKnight's phrase. And so we don't really see the point of something like that. I grew up in a unique version of this resistance to the body, where basically in worship or prayer, any form of embodiment was really resisted. Now, that's not where everyone's coming from, but just so you know, we're all kind of in this together. Most of us are coming from a place that has hesitancy about fasting. This issue with the body is bigger than any one of our churches or churches of origin. It's cultural. When C.S. Lewis was writing one of his fictional novels, it's called That Hideous Strength. The villain in his story is trying to learn how, quote, to learn to make our brains live with less and less body. There's this brain in a vat that's just bigger and bigger, and it's the villain of the story because Lewis knew what was coming, that this sense of a person as only a brain or a mind was overwhelming. And what's happened is the philosophical arguments of people like Rene Descartes have trickled down into cultural assumptions, and more and more, we think the body has nothing to do with the real me. Now, we see this in a lot of areas. Your identity, we assume, can be at odds with your body. Your gender can be at odds with your sex. Your faith, if you're a Christian person, can be in your head even if it's not actually lived out in your life with your body. We have this separation between body and mind. And layered on top of these these philosophers that have trickled down is a digital revolution that makes all of this possible. There's this promise of disembodiment where you can actually be who you really are. Have you ever read the fictional book Ready Player One or seen the movie? In the oasis, it's like the metaverse in the future. The fat could become thin, the ugly could become beautiful, the shy extroverted, or vice versa. They say you could change your name, your age, your sex, your race, your height, weight, voice, hair color, and bone structure, or you could cease being human altogether and become an elf, an ogre, an alien, or any other creature from literature, movies, or mythology. You see, if you really want to be you, you don't need your body to be you in the metaverse. That may be a promise of the future, but it's a promise that's already being offered today. There's a promise of full humanity, of full relationships without a body. Now, there are some real clear distortions of this, like pornography and sex robots. Yes, sex robots are a thing, thankfully not very widespread in the United States yet, where you can have sexual encounters and relationships without another body. Even Facebook, not to go straight from sex robots into Facebook, but I did. Facebook or Meta, the the parent company of Facebook, they will give you thousands of friends without any bodies. Their mission statement says they want to give the people, they want to give people the power to build community and to bring the world closer. Don't you know where real community is experienced on Facebook? Zoom can connect you remotely and they promise we deliver happiness. But whether it's Zoom or Facebook or sex robots or porn, all of these we know leave us wanting something more, that they are less than the authentic human experience that we are craving. The promise 
of a full self without a body ends up being empty. Meanwhile, fields like psychology and neurology, forgive me, Candy, for speaking for your field, are discovering loads of intersections between the body and the mind that inform a person's sense of self. They're not separated, they're actually fully integrated. One scholars at UCLA and McMaster University, their studies point to the way microbes in our stomach affect the neural activity in our brain. Your brain is not just another organ, they report. It's affected by what goes on in the rest of your body. In fact, Scientific American reports that there is an often overlooked network of neurons lining our guts that is so extensive, some scientists have nicknamed it our second brain. And all of this resonates with the Christian view of the human person. James Smith again. Contemporary science is starting to catch up to this ancient biblical wisdom about the human person. The Christian view is not the secular view that you are just a body. The Christian view is not the Platonic view that our bodies merely house our minds and are expendable. The Christian view is that we are body and spirit fully integrated in one being. Tim Mackey says, you do not have a soul, you are a soul. Dallas Willard says, there is an essential continuity and a union between the person and the body. In an important sense, a person is his or her body. C.S. Lewis, he says Christianity is almost the only one of the great religions which thoroughly approves of the body. Now here, not of the flesh, Uh, it thoroughly approves of the body, which believes that matter is good, that God himself once took on a human body, that some kind of body is going to be given to us in heaven and is going to be an essential part of our happiness, our beauty, and our energy. Sam Albury, who wrote a book called What God Has to Say About Our Bodies, He's reflecting on the incarnation of Jesus, and he says to become a human person, Jesus, he needed to become a human body. Becoming human at Christmas was not meant to be reversible. It was permanent. There is now a human body sitting at the right hand of God the Father at the very center of heaven. The human body is important. We are embodied, which means that discipleship is going to require our full selves, our whole bodies. Worship can take the whole person, and so does discipleship. Some of us have this implicit assumption in our heads that I can think my way into transformation. And it is true that you are renewed by the renewing of your mind, as Paul says in Romans chapter 12. But your mind is renewed through whole body experiences. Some of us think, if I just sat in another Bible class, then I would have what it takes to live the life of self-denial and discipleship to Jesus. Except nobody actually thinks that because we have seen people who spent decades in another class and another class with more teaching and more teaching and more teaching and there's little spiritual transformation or fruit to show for it. Because the path to transformation and the path of discipleship is far more than our minds and our brains. It takes the whole person. Okay, there is biblical wisdom for us, though. There is a spiritual practice that most of us rarely have ever tried that incorporates a full-body approach to discipleship. And it's an approach that Jesus himself practiced, that he taught us how to practice, and that we're about to start on February 28th. The practice is fasting. 
So why, why fasting? How to fast? Should we fast? We're going to dive into Matthew chapter 9, verse 14. And this text is what Richard Foster calls perhaps the most important statement in the New Testament on whether Christians should fast today. Let's explore this text together, see what it says, and then see how we can do this together. Okay, here's our text. You've already seen this verse, but let's go through it again. Then John's disciples came and they asked him, how is it, how is it that we, John's disciples, and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Now, their reasons for fasting and not fasting are very different from ours, culturally speaking. Because in their day, it seemed like everybody was fasting. It's the opposite problem that we have. Everybody was fasting, but they were doing it for different reasons. The disciples of John come to Jesus and say, we have noticed a difference here. So why were the disciples fasting? John's disciples seem to be fasting in anticipation of the coming Messiah. They're waiting for and praying, longing for the coming of the Lord, and they're fasting in anticipation. Meanwhile, the Pharisees fasted, what seems like, and we'll look at this next week, for mostly public recognition, for outward acts of piety to show people how holy you were. Legitimately, that's what they seem to be doing. Twice a week, the disciples of the Pharisees would fast. But they've noticed a difference in the disciples of Jesus. Now, a couple of things on this. The disciples of Jesus did fast. Jesus taught them how to in Matthew chapter 6. But he taught them how to do it secretly. And it seems like because it was done secretly, they're assuming it wasn't done at all. And there's enough truth here of a difference for Jesus to be able to explain why the difference. Let's look at it today. Jesus answered, how can the guest of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The guest of the bridegroom. Now, this language of bridegroom, just think of groom, right? So it's a wedding party. And the guest there is actually the word sons. These are his boys, right? These are, it's probably the, like the groom's groomsmen. That's what we would call it. In other words, to posture yourself as if it's a funeral is not appropriate on the day of a wedding or even the night before a wedding, like we would call a bachelor party. The bachelor party is not the time for sackcloth and ashes. The bachelor party is the time for dancing and fun. The wedding is a feast, not a fast, and the groom is standing right in front of you. You see what he's saying? That the presence of Christ makes it to where you do not need to mourn his absence. If you're, if you're longing for the presence of God to be with you, I'm right here, Jesus says. One commentator, Craig Blomberg, he calls this an implicit kind of, um, uh, what's he called? A, a claim to divinity. It's an implicit claim to divinity that he's making because he's saying that I am the bridegroom. Now, this is a, a little hidden because in the Old Testament, the language of bridegroom is exclusively, it seems like, applied to God himself. Yahweh is the bridegroom. Yahweh is going to come back, and Jesus is saying, I am him, come in the flesh. Jesus is making a significant claim about him being the presence of God. So it makes mourning obsolete, which reveals something about what fasting is. Don't miss this. That fasting is about posturing yourself as a response of grief. Fasting is not just for weight loss. You can do that. That's fine. You can do it every day, apparently, right? You can fast every day. 
That's not what we're talking about. Fasting is a response to a sacred moment in life, to use the language of Scott McKnight. So when someone dies in the ancient world, the appropriate natural response is fasting. Now, how does that differ from our culture? The appropriate natural response is to set up a meal plan and to have just casseroles, apparently. Just casseroles and, casser- and more. Just, can we fill up your freezer with frozen food? That's the American response to grief. That is not the ancient response. But death isn't the only form of grief, correct? There's other forms of grief, like some, something else that was lost or a recognition of something broken. The realization of sin is the most common prompt for fasting in, in the scriptures. We'll look at all of this more next week. But we see that fasting is a bodily response that is very natural. Most of us, when we're experiencing significant grief or loss or lament, lose our appetites. The, the way that one scholar says it in his book, he says, fasting is a choice not to eat for a designated period because some moment is so sacred that partaking in food would deface or profane the seriousness. Does that make sense? Like it's just, it doesn't fit what I'm feeling. And sometimes it does fit what I'm feeling, but I know it doesn't fit what God is feeling about this. So the scholar goes on. He says, at the very core of fasting is empathy with the divine. Empathy, feeling with the divine. I want to feel as God feels about a situation in response to it. You want to take on the perception of God in this sacred moment. Fasting is a way to embody that response of loss and grief and lament. When God is grieved, when a nation is threatened, uh, we could provide a lot more examples of this in scripture. The point is this, he says, fasting identifies with God's perspective and grief in a sacred moment. Fasting enables us to identify with how God views a given event, and fasting empowers us to empathize with God. Fasting is about pathos, your feelings, your emotions, taking on the emotions of God in a given event. Sometimes it can be hard to take on the emotions of God when there's an emptiness in the situation but a fullness in our bellies. But an emptiness in our bellies can move us to truly feel, in a whole person feel, what's happening in the world. Part of why I desire for Oikos Church to take on the practice of fasting is so it can be a part of our repertoire. It's in our our toolkit, right? So that when grievous moments happen, and they do, we can fast, as God's people have always done, in lament and prayer. And they can become part of how we communicate to God, to others, and to ourselves in these sacred moments. So, Jesus responds. He says, you can't mourn while I'm with them. That's that doesn't fit the mood. Instead, the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken. Scholars say this word taken is a violent word. And most of them interpret this to be whenever he was taken at his betrayal. When the crowd of people came, Judas betrayed him with a kiss on the cheek. And he says, are you coming to me with swords and clubs? I've been in your midst all the, but they take him away and then they crucify him. So does that mean that there's only a couple of days that the disciples of Jesus are supposed to fast. As in, yes, from the events of his betrayal Thursday night until they saw him again Sunday. No, because Christians continue to experience the absence of Jesus. Yes, don't miss this. We also experience his presence by the gift of his spirit. 
but we long for him, and our prayer is, Lord, come quickly. This prayer is the prayer that he's pointing us to here, that when he's taken, when he's absent, when he's removed, look at this, then they will fast. Then they will fast. John Piper has a book on fasting where he really explores this He says, Jesus clearly thinks of himself as a bridegroom who is gone not only for three days between Good Friday and Easter, but for all the time until the second coming. The Gospel of Matthew makes this clear. In Matthew 25, Jesus, the only other time he talks about himself as the bridegroom, again says that I am the bridegroom and I am coming back at the second coming. Matthew 25, 12, and 13. So he's saying that it's the whole period of the church age is the time when the bridegroom is taken away. Not just the three days after his betrayal, but it's, we are still living in this time of the, of the bridegroom's absence, where we long. Robert Gundry, he says, the entirety of the church age constitutes the days that will come when the bridegroom is taken away. I agree. Almost every commentator I can find agrees. Then they will fast. And so our hesitation becomes not biblical, but it becomes personal. I look around and think, well, why am I not doing it? You may want to fast for productivity or for health benefits and weight loss or mental clarity. But for me, it's simply enough that Jesus is expecting me to. What else is there? If I want to go deeper into discipleship, Jesus is saying that this is a practice that can help grow my longing for his return in his presence. So, Fasting is not trying to gain a Christ we do not have. It's trying to be emptied of the things that keep us from being filled up with the Christ that we do have. This is how Jesus wraps up this thought. He says, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Duh, nobody does that. I mean, this is all brand new to me. I'm like, my jeans seem to get looser the more I wear them, not shrink. I don't know what you're talking about. But for the sake of this text, there's a a new piece of cloth that's put onto an old garment. And he says what happens is the patch will pull away from the garment and it, it will eventually tear off and make it all worse. He uses a similar illustration with wineskins. He says, neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. Now, this one makes a lot more sense to us. The issue is that as wine ferments, it expands and there's gases that are released, and pressure that builds. And what happens, if they, if they do add it, the skins will burst, and the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. That way, both are preserved. What commentators say that Jesus is talking about, he's saying that my spiritual practices, the practices for the church, for the disciples of Jesus, he says they do not map one-to-one onto the practices of ancient Israel. We are not Jewish in that sense. He says, that is an old wineskin. There is a new way. But notice, he's not throwing out fasting. He's saying new fasting, not no fasting. So the new fasting is a fasting that understands that Christ has come, that our sins are forgiven, that the Spirit has sealed us for eternity, and yet we are longing for his presence to come back. Fasting has changed. It's not total lament and desperation. We do not mourn as those who have no hope. 
but we do more. And so fasting needs to fit the time that we're living, Jesus says. A new form for this new, new phase, phase of the Christian story. So how can we do this? McKnight, in his book, Fasting, calls what we're talking about body talk. Body talk. Can I just give a few illustrations of body talk? And I'm going to use a marriage relationship. Um, I was talking to, to one of our husbands here. And he says he and his wife are in a good place. You can tell because he says we can communicate without words right now. Like we're so connected. We're so in tune that we can just look at each other and we can have a conversation. There, there are some forms of communication that can happen without words and without bodies, right? Um, you can picture like a, a, a couple, uh, if you're not married, guys, this sometimes happens. One of them is talking to the other one and then you just kind of fall asleep. Like, yes, I don't even know what you're talking about. I just fell asleep. There, there is an intimacy there, though. Now, when it comes to prayer, sometimes people feel guilty about falling asleep when they pray. You may have heard me say this before. To people who feel guilty about falling asleep when they pray, I always say, like, but isn't that actually a sign of, like, deeper and more gentle intimacy than you've ever experienced? Like, when, when a parent has a child and they're telling them a story... And, and they're holding them close, and the child falls asleep, and then they lay them down, it's not a sign of disconnection. It's not a reason to feel guilt. It's actually a sign of your closeness and intimacy with your father. So there's some ways of communicating that involve our minds, but don't involve our bodies very much. Right? This, I think this makes sense. So I was listening to Zach Shapley and Janet talk over a meal the other day. And he was describing his approach to relationship therapy. Zach's a licensed counselor who does a lot of marriage work. And he says, what I try to do is I'm trying to create, Zach, forgive me again, I'm speaking for you. Um, he said, I'm trying to create n- new neural pathways in the brain for people. And th- the way to do that isn't just to get them thinking as if it only involved your mind. He says, I actually want them to, to use the presence of another person I want them to use eye contact and physical touch, and then I want them to speak out loud. That He says, when you do all of those things, it actually moves from one part of your brain into another. Now, I don't know if it's from right to left. I'm not the scientist here. But it, there's, it's creating new neural pathways that can renew and build trust and create intimacy and bonds and love. And it's because you're not just communicating with your minds, as beautiful as that is. It's that you're communicating with your mouths. It's, you're communicating with your bodies. Now, how does this apply to prayer? Let me give another illustration. Prayer without a word spoken out loud is good. Now, it's, it's not very often how people pray in Scripture. In Scripture, people seem to always pray aloud. Even the silent prayers of women like Hannah, her mouth is still muttering. It's still moving. So the modern sense of just exclusively mental prayers is really unusual. But I'm saying it can be good. This, this week, I, I did that. One night this week, I went to bed, and I silently, without a word spoken, prayed to the Lord, and I asked the Lord to give me a word in the night to help Oikos understand body talk. Okay, so I'm, I'm just silent prayer. The Lord hears it, though, and he answers at 2.07 in the morning. At 2.07 in the morning, he gives me all of these illustrations um, from 
my friend talking about communicating without a word from another one from the conversation with Zach, and it just all floods me. Without a word spoken, I awoke in the night to this burst of clarity about this concept. It was beautiful. Yes, God can hear my unspoken thoughts, and he can respond in unspoken ways. Thank you, Lord. But sometimes the problem is that then it's just gone. And so if I'm actually going to remember it, remember it, I have to engage my body, and I have to write it down. It has to move from my mind into my hands and my fingers to write it down, to make the concept stick. This is what fasting does for prayer. Prayer aloud is good. (laughs) Prayer silently is good. But prayer in Scripture, it seems to almost be exclusively spoken aloud. It's not that God, of course, He knows your thoughts. But when you speak them, they register in a different way to you and to the people around you. When you speak them, they stick in a different way. And so prayer, even prayer postures, can help our prayers stick in a different way to the people around us and to ourselves. Scripture's filled with these prayer postures like lifting up holy hands or or bowing down and casting crowns. All of these postures help our, our, our whole selves practice what it is that we think and what we believe. And so when combined with prayer, fasting is actually a means of communicating with God and with others and with ourselves with and without words. So when you communicate something to God and others, it actually allows it to stick in a deeper way. It creates those new neural pathways and it uses and activates that second brain, your gut, to do it. So I think fasting is a it, I mean, it's a, it's a biblical practice that Jesus is asking us to do that, that can have significant benefits to our life of prayer. And we'll explore those this month. But it's simply this. Jesus says, then they will fast. So my question is, all right, when will we fast? He says, then they will fast in, in the time when he's taken away. And so what are we waiting on? Why don't we try it? Let me offer this invitation to fasting, 40 days of prayer and fasting. Now, some of you are like, 40 days is a pretty significant invitation. Remember, it's one meal a week at least for the six weeks leading up to Easter. It's an invitation, not an obligation. If you have a medical condition, if you're pregnant, if you're nursing, if you have job requirements, this may not. But I think that there's probably a way that you can modify a fast to walk this journey with us. I want you to stay tuned for resources for this. We're going to give everybody everything you need to walk this journey together. And it's an invitation that our whole church is invited to practice. So uh, let, me say, let me say a few things about this and, and then I'll wrap up. One thing about this invitation is that this is an invitation to a well-traveled journey. This is an invitation of Moses, the lawgiver, who fasted. Elijah the prophet, David the king, Daniel the seer, they all fasted. This is Hannah in the Old Testament and Anna in the New Testament. They're they're fasting. God's people, since the time of Moses at least, have been fasting. Jesus fasted. The apostles of Jesus fasted. Paul says, I was in fastings often. He says, I'm disciplining my body to bring it into subjection. The early church fasted. We see these glimpses in the book of Acts where they're fasting in Acts chapter 13. In fasting and prayer, the Spirit leads them out into the greatest mission works that the world has ever seen. 
And then in the first century and on, to use the language of McKnight again, he says, all churches everywhere began to practice a 40-day fast leading up to the season of Easter. This 40-day fast was this kind of echo of Moses and Elijah and mostly Jesus. And it was a way of remembering the grief and the loss and the cost of what Jesus has done for us at Calvary. So for 40 days, they wanted to practice introspection and reflection and confession leading up to the season. And so we're going to give guides for how to practice introspection, confession, and reflection as we fast together. This is a well-traveled journey, and it's not just a Catholic journey. From the very beginning of the church, all the way through the Reformation, even the most anti-Catholic reformers, like Luther himself, still practiced fasting for the 40 days at Lent, twice a week, every week, also at Pentecost, and again at Advent. It's like, no one was harder on the Catholic practices of fasting at the time than Luther, and he still didn't throw out the practice with the, with the, the baby, with the bathwater of legalism. And this isn't just like a, a, it's not just a Luther thing. The Calvinists fast, Arminians fast, the Methodists fast, Christians. This is a Christian practice that goes, it's, it's wide and varied and it goes all the way back. This is a well-traveled journey. And so you are not alone on this journey. You are walking with God's people around the world today and God's people, this journey that they have walked many times before. So would you like to join me in 40 days of fasting? Like to? <laughs> Willing to? I'm inviting you into 40 days of prayer and fasting, and we will do this together, Lord willing, those 40 days leading up to Easter, beginning with our prayer gathering on February 28th. So you have a few weeks to begin kind of exploring what this can look like. Our resources will be available to you probably starting next week, and then we'll make sure everybody has those, at least in PDF form, by the time we start. This, though, is an invitation, let me say again, not an obligation. Love is the measure of the Christian life, not a lack of food. Second, this is a customizable invitation. You can fast at your own pace, a few days a week, or just one meal a week, and we're not asking, again, we're not asking to practice starvation, but fasting. Third, this is an invitation to practice prayer and fasting with a community of disciples with our church. We're gonna all do this together. And this is a new step for most of us, but it's a step that you get to take arm in arm with your brothers and sisters. So imagine a church that steps into this. If we're replacing our sense of fullness with the real sense of his, of his absence, how might he draw us to himself in new ways? How might he transform our self-indulgent behaviors into something that looks more like self-denial, that looks more like true discipleship? How might he transform our church? What spiritual breakthroughs await It's pretty exciting to me. It may be intimidating to you. But I can imagine what the Lord might do in you if he began to expand this simple practice for you and for our church. Um, all right. Let me end with a, a benediction from the Book of Common Prayer. Would you stand? I want to pray this over you.
may we find more of the one who was taken away. Almighty and everlasting Father, you hate nothing you have made and forgive the sins of all who are penitent. As we fast, create and make us new and contrite hearts that we may lament our sins and acknowledge our wickedness, lamenting the sufferings around us. May we obtain you, the God of all mercy, perfect remission and forgiveness and help in our need. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen.